Hey everybody, welcome back to the New Seat Podcast. And today we are so fortunate to be joined by someone with a vast experience across all different sectors in the HR space from finance and from working at UBS to American Express from working at really cool startups like Etsy and Snike, which I don't even know if I said that right, but I love their logo with the dog. I'm familiar with them. And to now being the chief people officer at Corvus Insurance, we're joined by the wonderful Dipti Salopec. Dipti, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I am excited to have this conversation. Yes, likewise. So are we. So Dipti, if you could please start us off. Mm-hmm. We know you have a very interesting background. We were just speaking about it before we recorded, you know, from India, going to the UK, now here in New York, mm-hmm. and sort of starting your career in finance and HR, all the way now to where you're at with Corvus Insurance. So please could walk us through how do we get to this point? Yeah, well, I can kind of share a couple of inflection points in my journey. So I went to London for college. I lived there, got my first job there. And it was honestly like probably the only place that would employ me kind of thing. You know, I just wanted to make some money and have some job at the site. But it was in HR in UBS. And that's got started, like got me started in my career. And then I kind of stuck in the field because I found I was always working on interesting projects and with cool people. Somewhere around when I was 25, I just wanted life adventure and decided to move to New York, which that meant I had to find another job and change things up. And so that was an inflection point even in my career journey and took me into the tech world. So I joined this company called Avanade, which is a joint venture between Microsoft and Accenture. Biggest small private company there ever is. And like, that's where I cut my teeth in HR. But then I joined American Express very clearly to learn mergers and acquisitions. Like that was like, let's get out of traditional HR and become more entrepreneurial. And we were just acquiring companies and trying to integrate them into Amex. And a couple of years in, I was like, I like the startups we're acquiring more than I like Amex. Like they were just fun and passionate and cool and agile and building interesting things and innovative. And that was my pivot point into the startup world. And um, many years back now, but I don't regret a single moment of it. And since then, I've just immersed myself into the the chaos, the ambiguity, the just building nature that is like startups and scale ups. Chris pronounced, did we pronounce it correctly? Was it Snake? Snake? How, how, it's how? Sneak. You know, I'll, I'll give you a funny little anecdote. Firstly, everyone gets it wrong, so do not feel bad. <laughs> but I'll give you a funny anecdote. When we raised our Series C funds, I think it's Sneak, there was a journalist who was like, you finally raised $500 million. Please go buy yourselves a vowel because nobody knows how to say your freaking name. And I was like, thank you. That just like summed up the challenge the company has with this name. Did you do you think it was a part of the ploy, like to I guess for brand awareness or anything like that? Or you just think it's just it's, it, some of it is like, hey, it's millennial cool to to have like a word without a vowel. But the other part of it is it's an acronym. So it's a cybersecurity firm and SNEAK stands for So Now You Know, because it helps you uncover the vulnerabilities that exist in your company. That's smooth. So. Gotcha. You mentioned earlier what really got you loving startups was your time at Amex dealing with M&A. Why, why did you make that conscious choice to jump right into M&A and understand the dynamic between multi-billion dollar companies like American Express into Sneak. Yeah, yeah. I think I wanted to like, for me, 
I've always, like after doing my foundational years in HR, what I find attracts me more is the entrepreneurial side of understanding the business and the talent value. And that's what M&A gave me. It's when you're doing a transaction, you're trying to further some part of your business strategy. It's not just like you're acquiring 50 people and you got to figure out what to do with them. It's like, here's the business case of the transaction. You're acquiring this company for a reason and it's tied into a strategy. And then you got to think about how to maximize the value of that transaction you've done. And a large part of it is how are you keeping the people? How are you amplifying the talent? How are you setting them up to build what you want them to build? So there's for sure a people element to it which was like my responsibility but there's a business transaction value driver conversation that you don't always get to be a part of when you are kind of mid-level HR somewhere else and so that was probably the most attractive part of it and that's also why I pivoted into startup world because I wanted to be a part of those conversations like that's why we do HR is because we're value driven for the business but whatever the strategy is, and, and that appeals to me. A big part of m and I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily understand, like, hey, there is a large part of human, I guess, there's lives that are transitioning to a whole other brand, essentially. Like, can you speak a little bit upon, yeah, not only are we merging customers and mm-hmm. revenue, but team. Like, I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily talk about teams merging and unifying cultures and making sure that transition you know, smooth for not only the people who are acquiring a company, but the people, you know, coming over. Can you speak a little about that? Yeah. And I think there's um, there's some really sordid stats out there, like 80% of M&A act- acquisitions don't actually work out and, and numbers like that. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons behind it. And one reason I think is because people sell a bigger value prop than they can actually execute on because you're trying to sell your company. It's like when you're talking to investors to raise funds, you you dig up on your company. So I think partly people sell something that's not realistic, but the other part of it is this element of cultural integration. And if you buy a company and then 30% of the people end up leaving because they feel disempowered, they were given a new manager all of a sudden, they were just like the policies changed, et cetera, you've lost the value of what you bought in the first place. So you got to think about this piece really carefully, this element of how am I retaining my people or at least identifying the core part of your acquisition, like you have acquired this company because of their tech talent or whatever it might be, and saying, how am I, whatever happens, I cannot lose the tech talent, right? I might maybe lose, I don't know, this person who was doing a compliance audit or whatever, and I can figure out how to deal with that, but I'm not going to lose the core value prop of why I did my acquisition in the first place. So you got to be very strategic in thinking about it and then put in place the right levels of, of integrating people carefully. I always say, like, wait a year. Like, understand this company. Don't break what's already working. Figure out the pieces you want to integrate, the pieces that it might not make sense to integrate, and then take it from there. And you do, ultimately, you bought this company. You probably will want to integrate them and not keep them as a totally separate thing. But be thoughtful about it. You don't need to do it in day one. What do you mean by take a year? Are you talking about mm-hmm. once? Once you in, once you acquire a company, take some time. I mean, it might not be a year. Maybe it's six months. Maybe it's two years. But it's like, just take the time and don't default to, I'm going to break them up and integrate them into my world. Because like, I'll give you an example. At Amex, 80,000 person company, we would buy uh, startups that have like 50 people, 60 people. And then when you integrate them, you're saying, okay, you go into this 300-person finance department. You go into this 300-person 
an HR department, whatever it might be, you've just broken the secret sauce of what could work. So we used to be very careful of saying, no, this company's in an incubator mode for some period of time while we figure out how are we supporting the secret sauce of what, why we bought the company in the first place and then figuring out integration. Like that incubation period, whatever you call it, is, it's, a, it's invaluable to, to kind of uh, laying up the stones for the success of the integration. I like that. I, I always thought when a larger company absorbed a smaller company, it was like, literally, like you said, you know mm -hmm. what, we'll take you guys, we'll just put you with our product stuff. We'll take you yeah. sales people, we'll throw you in our product, our, our sales system or whatever. I, I wasn't really necessarily aware that that's also an option where people could simply just say, hey, we like your company, join us. We'll let you keep doing your thing. And as time progresses on, uh, we'll mm -hmm. accommodate. Was that something you saw that was an active practice while you were at Amex? Or was that something you learned or saw elsewhere as you were doing with other startups and things like that? We did it both ways at Amex, and often it depends on the, the reason of the acquisition. So sometimes you're acquiring a company because of their product. And then you don't want to break everyone up straight away because they're the ones building the product. So you like everything will kind of you'll trip it up. There's other times when you do an acquisition that's called an acquihire, which is you just want the talent. And then you probably do want to absorb the talent into your bigger talent pool because you don't want them building what they were building. You just want those skills and you want them to build something new. So you really have to start with thinking, what's the business strategy behind the acquisition and then build your plan from there. But I'd say more often than not, you're acquiring a company because of what they were building in the first place. Uh, that's the more common route. And so you have to be careful of breaking that. As Chris mentioned earlier, you, you, you jumped everywhere when it comes to dealing with people in HR. How have you seen the evolution of people ops or TA or HR, however you want to describe it? you know, throughout the years of you, you know, serving the space? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this question. I know you asked me this a while ago as well, and I've been thinking about it. And I, I try, I find it a little bit difficult to extricate from my, own, like, how have I developed as a person? How much of this is just me getting smarter as a leader versus the field actually changing? But here's what I'd say about the field. I do think there was a massive, it's been evolving, like, and modernizing for sure over the past couple of decades. But there was a massive inflection point when COVID happened. And that was all of a sudden, people were at the forefront of the discussion. Like we, what were we doing when people were remote? How are we measuring productivity? How are we making sure people were okay? Well-being became an issue. Burnout became an issue. You know, diversity became a huge issue. Like it just happened to be at the same time, not related to COVID. But like these topics were just they brought the chief people officer role into a much more central position in the conversation. So that was a massive inflection point. And then what I see now, and that could have easily just died off as then business picked up and things started normalizing. But then now with this downturn in the economy, it's almost become the opposite. It's like, oh, are we doing layoffs? Can we do affordability? There's, there's, uh, if we want to drive efficiency and profitability and profitable growth becomes more important. And the, all that conversation again puts the CPO in the front because 80% of a business, a typical business's costs are its people. There's a huge amount of money that's going there. So when you're trying to think of efficiency and profitable growth and maybe layoffs, really it's your CPO who's driving or should be in the driving seat of those conversations. And so I fundamentally think like I've seen this shift just over the last five years, the of HR take moving from a supporting role into a business driver position. 
has there been any inflection points that you felt as if it really made, let's say, the executive team start to make you know strong initiatives towards supporting the CPO position in terms of, hey, we need to be doing this valuing employee experiences. Hey, we need to be doing this when it comes to onboarding new candidates, you know, providing unique experiences, things like that. Were there any, it could be something as granular as COVID, or maybe you have, you know, a few couple moments internally working at various companies that you saw like, hey, like, wow, ever since this, uh, things really took a turn. Yeah, I could see it like ever since like, like probably the early 2000s when the Google and Facebook kind of era took off, I would see exact say like, we need to have ping pong tables, otherwise nobody's going to join it. Like it was like silly stuff, you know? And I would argue that's not at all why people join us, but there became this culture in the tech startup world. Like if we don't do fancy free food, great kitchens and like foosball, ping pong, like it's not going to happen. Right. Like, and so I saw this year will be like at Critio when I was at Critio, even at Sneak, the offices we had were incredible. The food we gave, the swag we gave, we were just like showering people with with like presence. I remember doing an employee survey where we were asking people for like just their engagement, right? Like what drives you, what motivates you, what's working, what isn't working. Probably the biggest piece of complaint I got was like someone wrote in the survey and I remember this and it's like seared in my head. Someone wrote in a survey, survey, I wish the wasabi peas we had in our kitchen were organic. Or I can't believe that there isn't enough almond milk versus walnut milk or whatever. And I'm like, oh, my God, you have real first world problems when these are your complaints of of like what's wrong in the company. Right. And so there was that era. And that, I think, was really shaped again by what was like everything that was happening. COVID, I think it was like people were starting to mature past that already before COVID, but COVID kiboshed that and we moved into an era of collaboration and connectivity that can happen virtually and productivity and the whole return to work or not return to work or hybrid or like that whole conversation that's happening now. And so there definitely see a whole different era at the moment that people are in. And I think today, I like there's a little bit of that still playing out for sure, but most companies have settled into some kind of rhythm. But today I see it much more as this concept of efficiency and profitable growth. And what does that look like? How funny is that, though, to think like everyone wanted to be in office. They wanted the foosball table. They wanted to have fun, the outings, the swag. And now I feel like all the rave is about sitting at home, doing work in bed, leave me alone. Yeah. Exactly. The same people who wanted the foosball are are literally like, I never want to see my colleagues again. I'm like, why are you making me see them? You know? Well, you, you, you spoke briefly offline about this, but you're also mm-hmm. an executive coach. Do you mind talking about, talking yeah. to us more about that venture? What got you to that point? You clearly have the experience. Yeah. Uh, what, what made you, you know, do that? I think... I cannot speak highly enough of each of us having a sponsor in life that sometimes sees something in you that you haven't seen for yourself and really nudges you along. And it was a C- it was our CEO at Sneak, actually, who one day called me and was like, Dipti, your strengths are so much towards executive coaching. Like, I will sponsor you. Go get certified in this. Like, this is the potential I see in you as a human being. And I honestly had never even thought about it until he planted that seed of thought. And like, you need these people who, like all of us do, we need these people who come into our lives and are like, I see you and I'm going to help you and and like, like push you further in your journey. Anyway, 
So I, I got this executive coaching certification just like based on a suggestion. I was frankly ambivalent when I started it. I'm like, really, am I kind of, could I be a good coach? But then I got really into it and it tapped into something that he saw in me that I hadn't seen at all, which is just this love and intuitive understanding of how we can help people and clients. And so now I, I am, the, as you said, the CPO at Corpus. But on the side, I have an executive coaching and advisory practice where I work with founders. And what I've realized is like, look, it's not like like I'm I have all the answers or I've seen everything, but I have seen more than someone out there. There is always someone that I can help. And I typically work with series B kind of series B, series C level founders that are six. Their company has been successful. This was their dream. And they didn't, you know, like companies aren't always successful and they hadn't like, this was like beyond their wildest hope. And now they're here and they've raised this serious money and they have to scale and they know that they don't have the experience to do that. And they're just like, oh my gosh, this has gone beyond me and beyond my dreams. And now I need to figure out what to do. And so that's typically the problem set or the kind of client that then comes and works with me. And I help them think through the leadership challenges, building a scalable team challenges, moving into new geographies challenges. Like scale comes with a whole bunch of different, how do I think about the talent and do I have the people for the next step in the company's journey? And uh, I help them think through that. First of all, we're showing a lot of love to Sneak, so let's... Yeah, 100%. That company was such a big pivotal moment for me, so huge thanks. Absolutely. So what what do you... I don't want to necessarily say what do you get out of uh, executive coaching that you mm -hmm. didn't get out of simply serving at that executive level for a mm -hmm. large company, which you still do, as you mentioned. Uh, what's yeah. the difference in terms of perspective, maybe even fulfillment, mm -hmm. or even awareness that you're starting to see when it comes to leadership, what the people space really means as a as an executive? I mean, I'm sure that I mean, you you dealt with it all when it comes to leveraging your your leadership skills and your awareness skills to build you know successful TA function. Yeah. Yeah. What does that look like? Almost acting as I guess one could argue a fractional right mm -hmm. people officer or leader to these you know series B C D startups could you uh break that down yeah so i think the the only nuanced difference between that and like a fractional leader is that a fractional leader would still be hands-on just doing the work just part-time whereas i don't do that i like meet them quite like every other week and we talk through some of their problems so i'm really playing an advisory role but then they're executing on it with their teams and the difference between that and this is what's the real value out there is it becomes dedicated reflection space so we sit down and go through like hey what's the challenge how are you thinking about it what expertise do you have that'll help you navigate this what do you what do you not have that makes you insecure uncertain that where are the you know often they'll talk to me about like uh, having to have conversations with the board they can't talk to anyone else about feeling insecure about raising board members. So it's a whole bunch of different things. The biggest thing is, I mean, I certainly hope I help my clients and I hope the fact that they stay with me is like some kind of evidence that I help them. But I also learn at least as much as they do because it's a dedicated reflective space. So like I hear their problems and their challenges and how they're thinking about it and the resources that they're applying to it. And it's tremendous eye opener for me on all the things that I could be doing too. 
So I think my operator role and my coaching role kind of interplay with each other. I think the fact that I'm doing it as an operator makes me a better coach and a more relevant coach. And then the fact that I hear all these different perspectives as a coach makes me a more thoughtful operator. Mm, that's really interesting. And I definitely see how those two things were sort of blend together and almost are beneficial for each, right? I feel like you get some positives from coaching that you could bring now to your role at Corvus and then vice versa. So something that I thought was really interesting was when the CEO of Sneak came to you and said, hey, I see in you that you can be an executive coach. So the first part of this question I'd like to ask is, what did he see in you that forced him, I had, that made him say, I have to tell him to do this. I need to call her into my office right now and tell her that. What did, what did he see in you? Yeah, it would be a good question for him. But I think the way I've understood it from our conversations is that I work a lot through influence as opposed to command and control. So I'm like, my strength is particularly in building trust and building relationship and then helping nudge you along the journey of whatever path you want to take and feel like be the support player behind you or the wingman, for lack of a better term, behind you to help you get there. And like, that's my skill. That's how I operate in my operator role as well as in any other. And he saw that tendency and he said, that's very intuitive to you. Why don't like you would be a good coach with that kind of skill set? I also think the other thing is like he's a leader who recognizes the value of coaching for himself and for others. So not all leaders do that. He sees it as an amplifier. And so he's like, hey, look, good coaches really do impact people's lives. So you like this is a value driver thing. Use your skills for for the amplification of good. You know? For sure. And just overall, your what are your thoughts on mentorship? Mm -hmm. Obviously you act as a support system as a coach and as an operator to a Corvus and in the people uh, position, you're constantly acting as someone who's helping people out and you're wearing a bunch of different hats, but just how important is having a mentor or just some sort of mentorship? And is there any mentors in your career that you've had that you're just so thankful for that you cross path with in your life? So to start with your last question, yes, yes, yes. There's many mentors that have helped me so much and that have like often, like I use this sneak example, but like even in past in Avanade and stuff, I've had people who are like, I see something in you and whatever that is. And then uh, just help me lean into my confidence in certain areas. So absolutely. I think what I often see in like folks at the more junior stage in their career is that they're looking for a mentor mentor as a silver bullet who will be like, hey, this person will teach me everything I need to do to be successful. And what I say is like, build a, a host of mentors. There's no one person who is perfect for everything you need. Find like almost like a board of advisors, find like 10 people who you admire for different things. This person is a great leader. That person is a great technical expert. That person understands sales really well whatever it is, find 10 people and then go to them for their areas of expertise that you actually really value in, that, in what they bring to the table. Don't have one mentor, have multiple mentors who you've worked with for all sorts of different areas. And I know I turn to the folks who mentor me, like sometimes I haven't spoken to someone in years and then they, like, a couple of weeks ago, I was writing a playbook. Oh, sorry, a couple of months ago, I was writing a playbook on something. I reached out to two of my mentors and I was like, I would really value your advice. Are you willing to do this? And of course, they made time for it. You know? And so, so just I don't have to bug them every day. I don't need them to spend weekly time with me. 
But in the moments that I'm like, that's the brain I need to tap into, I have the relationship and the trust to be able to do that. And that's what I really recommend to people is build your personal board of directors, for lack of a better term, mentors, whatever. I like that. You should coin that. Your own personal uh, it is actually not even mine. I am 100% sure one of my mentors told me this. So it's certainly not my brainchild, but I have found it to be very true. Yeah, I like that. I mean, funny enough, I'm about to make a, another sneak reference, I guess. we got we, This might as well be a sneak ad. Hey, guys, uh, if sneak is hiring, they're great. You you mentioned how valuable those relations were were to you, right? Mm-hmm. Mentors, either you mentioned in this instance, it's for the playbook, or maybe you're making a career decision. On the topic of sneak, understand that. I'm, what's the founder's name? Uh, the founder is Guy Pajarni, and the CEO is different. His name is Peter McKay. And it was Peter that introduced you yeah. to well, coaching. Well, yeah, the coaching. Yeah. So talk to us about the relationship between the chief people officer and the CEO. I mean, understand that yeah. your relationship was clearly one to be admired. Mm-hmm. Outside looking in, how should the relationship between a chief people officer and a CEO or a CHRO be for a successful, yeah. um, I guess, yeah. ecosystem internally as well as externally in terms of bringing people in and welcoming them into the brand and the culture of a company? Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, to take the pressure of poor Peter and sneak for a moment, (laughs) I would say that with Corvus as well. I think like the relationship between the CPO and the CEO is one of the most fundamental ones you can have. And here's why, right? Like like any good CEO is going to surround them with a team of experts. You're going to have your CTO, your CFO, like each person brings a wealth of knowledge and expertise in their field. What a good CPO does is looks across all of this across the team and and becomes an expert in the team dynamics. So like I can go to the CEO, like it could have been Peter, but it could be Madhu today at Corvus. It's the same thing. I could go and say, hey, like I see something a little bit funky here. What's going on? And all, And no other person in the team can have that conversation with him. Like this felt a little bit like, heated like what's like there's an undercurrent in this conversation what's happening there's no one else who can have that conversation except the cpo and it's the cpo's job and so to take to force the ceo to step back and even just reflect for a moment like oh i hadn't realized that i was just so focused on getting my revenue numbers i hadn't stopped to think there's something else happening here like to to like Hold the CEOs accountable to that is probably the biggest piece that they value because there's nobody else who does that for them. And so that comes back to the coaching element. It comes back to just being the trusted CPO. So on top of like, you know, people need to have benefits, they need to get paid, blah, 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 blah. Like you need to recruit, like there's the operational element of the role, but the biggest piece of place that you can have impact is just being that thought partner to the CEO on the stuff that nobody else can ask because you're the expert in team dynamics. Is that something that you've had to learn growing to this position you're in currently? Is this something that you felt as if you intuitively were aware of, whether it be you simply working in HR or TA, maybe not necessarily at executive level, but coming up the ranks? Yeah, I mean, I remember even way back at Avanade, I was like HR director, but I worked for the CEO of that, like, you know, the Northeast business unit or whatever, right? So it wasn't the CEO of the company, but it was the one that headed my business unit. 
And I remember way back then, he was like, here's what I need you to do. I need you to observe this, 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 and this. I need you to come to me when I am messing things up in these areas. So like almost from early in my career, I was groomed by good CEOs who had seen good HR saying, this is where I need you to be operating. I'm setting the bar for you. And so you learn it like early in your career, you absorb it, you observe other good role models and you start imitating them and you pick it up. But probably the place I had to most like, all right, now the shit hits the fan for lack of a better term is when you step into that CPO position yourself and you're like, all right, now I got to do it. I got to produce the goods here. And so Etsy, Sneak, Etsy was a learning ground for me in a lot of ways, but Sneak and now Corvus, like I, I really feel like I'm coming into my own in this position. What is something you would like to see different in the people space, whether it's maybe a default practice that you you've noticed that people tend to follow that you're a little bit you know, iffy on or maybe there's you know certain processes that you wish were more you know available or more talked about i think it's something about business ownership i see it in some cpos who have really good aptitude in this area but i don't see it in the field in general so what i mean by business ownership is if you own truly own the talent of your company you and you it's about 70 or 80 percent of the customers of your company and you should be thinking when you have the responsibility of the number of it it's like owning a pnl as opposed to just thinking about performance management and good goal setting and good recruiting practices and stuff you would then start thinking about do we need to hire these positions how do spans of control start influencing the actual number in the end where does efficient decision making happen like you start thinking about how do i drive this business forward because you own a number and that's a very different mindset and of course you care about the talent like that's how you bring it to life but you're not just focused on the talent which is just a cost base when that mindset changes. Like I'd say in vast majority of organizations, I feel like it's still the CFO who owns the number and HR is the one who does the best practices on the people front. And I think I would love to see that pivot change where it's the CPO who's accountable for that number ultimately. I mean, the CFO has to be accountable for all numbers, but just like the head of sales is accountable for sales, I think the CPO should be accountable for the talent cost and that would fundamentally change the kind of CPO you'd have in an organization. With that being said, how would you translate that to the early stage startups that you work with today? Like, is this something that you speak with them about or something you say, hey, be you know, cognitive of this? Or is it more so you're speaking with them more holistically about their, their business? Because I work mostly with the founders rather than the CPOs, they have varied, like, especially the early stage startups that I work with, they have very, they, they might have like an HR manager or like, you know, they haven't made the investment in a CPO and they shouldn't. They're just tend to be a little bit earlier in their journey. And so I like, so this isn't a conversation I could necessarily have with them. They don't have, they aren't equipped with the right talent to be able to do that. But I, th the reason they engage me is because they want that voice. So then I will often be like, what's the talent? What's the leadership team looking like? How much are you spending on X, Y, Z? How are you thinking? When you're thinking of expanding in certain areas, how are you calculating the real costs of this? So those conversations I tend to have, and that's why they've engaged me, because they don't have that voice at the table. Interesting. So the reason Chris and I really got started with this mm -hmm. podcast was because we 
as individuals that recently came out of college would love to understand the decision makers who are bringing in candidates and essentially helping people start their careers, as we mentioned to you offline. How would you describe the relationship with career goers or career ex, you know, explorer, people that are exploring their careers, right? Stepping into really any industry, learning about the company, learning about team dynamics, understanding what the right fit is for them and what that really means, you know, now versus the long term. How equipped you think, you know, candidates are being that you've been in the space for a while versus how aware do you think TA leaders or HR leaders are when it comes to appealing to this upcoming demographic when, you know, they clearly want different demands opposed to what we mentioned earlier, which is the ping pong table and stuff like that. They do care about the quality engagement, you know, growth opportunities, things like that. Yeah. And I think I picked up two different angles to your question. So like, forgive me if I answer it wrong, but there's the element of how do the TA leaders appeal to them? And I do think you need to refine your, I'm using the word pitch, but I don't mean it like a false sales pitch. I just mean you need to find the parts of your company that truly are authentically parts of your company that will resonate with the audience that you're looking for. So sometimes you're you're hiring like a, a younger generation of folks that that care about different things. Sometimes you're hiring an executive that isn't a younger generation person who will care about different things. And you've got to be able to, as a skilled recruiter, be understand the needs of your audience and be talking to them and meet them where they are. So I think there there is that. But then there's the other part of your question I think I picked up, which is really around like, how do we as a company start thinking about these this audience and their needs and the evolving expectations of people? And here's the piece I think companies do need to think about, I'm reading this book right now. It's a newest book by um, Reed Hoffman, and it's like called Alliances or something. So I'm, I'm like thinking about it a lot at the moment. But basically, I think, you know, they're saying, hey, stop promising someone a whole, like, you'll be here till you retire kind of journey and start, like, because it just doesn't exist. And we all know it doesn't exist. So, like, you know, it's a farce when you market it like that and start talking about it almost in terms of, like, duty missions like over the next two years here's what you'll bring to the company and here's what we'll bring to you and then after that maybe there's something else we can interest you in and we, that's our job is to keep adding market value to your resume by keep giving you new duty missions that are like the that uh stretch you and expand you and grow your skill set and you kind of commit to us every two years in terms of like what you bring to the table too, right? But let's start talking about it almost like a partnership or an alliance as opposed to this contract for life. And I think companies need to start really thinking about that and rephrasing what the value proposition looks like. But what I'd say on the flip side of that for individuals is I see a lot of people who want the shortcut to the top. who are like, I'll do two years of whatever, but then I need you to see me for the amazing talent that I am and promote me to VP straight away, whatever. And I just think like, it's just like exercising and building muscles. You got to do the reps. There's no other way. Like sometimes do the crap work. Sometimes turn up in the meeting and be the person who volunteers for the thing that nobody else wants. Because those are the moments that give you an edge that open opportunities and doors and relationships that you can't think about. And, and I just think we have a generation of people who want the shortcut and and that doesn't exist. Like this is still real life. You still have to earn your way up. How do you deal with that? I mean, Chris and I, we speak about this often as well. We do have <laughs> heard stories where people are like, oh, 
whether they want to make like $200,000 a year coming out of college or they expect to be a VP of something after three years or so, there, there's evidence that there's an unrealistic point of view from people looking into careers. How do you combat that yet also keep them engaged to want to you know proceed accordingly without losing their interest? Yeah. And I, I do think, you know, I mean, part of it is exactly what you said. It's people with unrealistic expectations sometimes. But part of it is also they're motivated by different things. So like what I find in the conversation when you have it is like, like this is the conversation I have with new joiners whenever I have an opportunity to speak to them. I will always say like, look, chances are we're a startup. You're not going to retire here. You're joining at this part of the journey. But for whatever amount of time you are with us at Corvus, you're going to, like, we promise to give you skills, relationships, networks. Those are the things that will be a springboard for the rest of your career. Like, that's what you should be looking for. And the day we're not giving you a challenge or something new, that's the day you need to come and hold us accountable. And those words, and actually that seems to resonate a lot more with people than 200,000 or 250 or whatever. Everyone wants money, don't get me wrong, but money is table stakes. It's not the exciting motivator. And I find that there's something that's deeply intrinsic that's actually a driver to people and you can talk to them in that language. How can candidates show up for leaders like yourself in terms of maybe them just being ready to present themselves or actually take a leap into said company, or maybe there's certain skills you're looking for. Like, what would you say is a good, you know, protocol, I guess, for candidates willing to get into a new career or start their career to make almost, there has to be an element of duality in terms of, you know, meeting you or meeting the company where they'd like to be met and vice versa. Yeah. And I think it changes by like role and like maybe let me use seniority as an example. At the most junior levels, it depends where you are in your career. You just need to prove that you can execute. You're reliable. You know your stuff and you can execute on what you say you do um, because that's what gets you the foot in the door. As you get more senior, you kind of people are looking much more for relationships and influence and leadership. And like humility goes a long way. Thoughtfulness goes a long way. And those are the attributes you, because your expertise is almost taken for granted. You've done the tours. We know you've like, you're, you know, whatever. You've headed engineering teams. We're kind of not testing you for your ability to code in whatever language. We're now looking for like, how do you actually head the team? Uh, you're going to have to set strategy. You're going to have to hold people accountable. So I think like, what you need to show up for kind of changes based on like as senior as you get in an organization. So something that I think is really interesting is mm -hmm. the time that we live in right now. I feel like also due to COVID, just the ability and for people to, to really understand how important soft skills are, right? The ability mm -hmm. to just have a conversation in passing and to just be a helping hand, just to be able to listen to someone. But in your experience, especially now when we're disconnected as ever, how important are the soft skills in this world today inside of an organization? I think much more, especially if you're operating remote, much more important because you have to over-index on those and make up for them. Like, so for example, both Sneak and Corvus were remote first as an organization. So I think it's very intuitive to our people because right from the moment that they're hired, we say, this is how relationships work. This is how communities work. This is where you input. This is how, like, we role model good remote behaviors. 
for companies that weren't used to that and then moved to COVID, like the one thing I hear is, oh, we got to get back into office because people don't build trust and relationships on Zoom. And I'd be the first person to be like, no, that's not true. It's just that your company doesn't know how to do, like the behaviors that are needed to build trust and relationship virtually are different, you know? So I do think that kind of skill set, especially if you're operating in a remote environment, are become much more important. Communication becomes much more important. You know, we started testing for like good written communication because if your slacks are kind of come across as snooty or whatever it is, like that stuff can make a really huge difference to people. So how do you think about written communications? How comfortable are you with emoji use? Like whatever it is, right? Like these these sound so trite, but actually are cultural uh, anchors in a company. With that being said, do you have a stance towards what's more effective in terms of company building, remote work or in person? You mentioned a company could complain and say, hey, remote work isn't efficient for us. Your answer would be no, you just don't have the right processes or practices in place to make it as efficient as you'd like it to be. Do you think that's the case when it comes to companies balancing what works for them in person or remote or how would you tackle that? Yeah. I So firstly, I don't think there's a one size fits all. If you're a company that makes something and you need people to be physically present, like you just need people to be physically present. Like I don't think there's an answer. I don't, I don't agree with the logic that remote work doesn't work because I've seen it for many, many years work perfectly well. I think the worst case scenario is when companies force people back into a hybrid environment and force, right? Like where it's naturally and people love coming into the office. A lot of companies have that. That's great where they give people the optionality and they have offices. But when you force people to come into the office more and more, I'm hearing that people, that companies are doing it because they have real estate and they don't want to see it unused. I think that's like such a poor justification to say, I'm spending money on real estate. So now I'm going to spend money and cost and, and like emotional leverage, getting people to come in who don't want to come in just because I'm spending money on the real estate. Like it's, it's such a messy downward argument. Like I can't live with that, that I think remote works, hybrid can work where it's optional for people and people are choosing to come in and not forced. And I've certainly seen in-person work where like, that's just how companies need to operate. I don't know. But I think the biggest piece of advice I'd give a company is like, no, be able to talk about why, whatever your chance is. Like if you're saying, hey, we need to be in person because that is the nature of our work. We're doctors. We're, we work in a hospital. Everyone needs to be. My husband is a pilot. You've got to be in person. There's no other way around it. Right. Like so they're, they're like we need to be in person. And here's why. That's easy. We need to be hybrid. And here is why. That's the 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 most complex one, I think, for companies to be able to answer. But but if they can and they can justify it, then that's what matters. Like be clear on what you want and why and articulate that to people. What's the biggest perk for you when it comes to remote work? The biggest perk? Definitely the flexibility, like the fact that I can go run with my dog and then do my calls and then like have an evening walk and spend some time with my husband. I remember when just sitting, having a cup of coffee with my husband every morning, it's so basic, but I couldn't do it when I was commuting because I'd get up, shower and get on the train. And that small thing has a big impact on our relationship to have the half an hour in the mornings to just leisure time together. So I think I think for sure that's the positive. 
the flip side of it, of course, is I always liked about, like there is something about interpersonal IRL connection. I feel it. I like we're human beings, we're pack animals at some very basic instinctual level. And so we try and balance the remote being remote first in our company with bringing people together, like have offsites. Have, you don't have to commute every day, but see each other on some kind of regular rhythm. And what's interesting is I was talking to a peer of mine and um, Facebook did this massive study. Their head of uh, remote was there and they did this massive study. And like what's amazing is with a company like Facebook, you have 80,000 people you can study. Like you get a big case study with a lot of data. And what they found is that an optimal amount of time for people to see each other is once in three months, about three or once in three or four months. Anything earlier, like anything shorter than that, if you make people come in every day or every week or every month even, it has no additional ROI. You can do it, but there's no additional bang from a, a connection point, point, a trust standpoint, a collaboration standpoint, nothing. After about every three or four months, again, if there's a drop-off, like if people only see each other once a year, there is a drop-off in relationships. So they found that optimal point to be people should see each other every three or four months. And then they built their strategy around it. They said, okay, every team's having an offsite every three months. That's like what we're going to do. And um, so, so like there is data that helps that says, Yes, in person really makes a difference on on like trust, collaboration, relationship, all of those things. It matters, but you don't have to do it with daily commuting. Well, that's so interesting. That three to four month threshold, it could still hold a relationship to be really strong, opposed to just mm-hmm. seeing you once a year. But it's weird how they're able to figure out that specific number. I think that's so interesting. Yeah. And something I wanted to highlight is absolutely love what you said there. The time in the morning with your husband, right? taking the time to just grow a strong relationship, to continue to live in that prosperous prosperous relationship that you guys certainly have. I really love to hear that the family time and everything is so important. And, you know, there's that positive to it is invaluable, in my opinion. I really thought it was beautiful. But with that being said, this has been absolutely amazing. I know Peace and I have learned so, so, so much from you. And I think everyone listening is going to absolutely love this. Can you tell the people, though, where can they find you? LinkedIn, anywhere else you, you want people to check you out if they want to learn more about what you have going on? LinkedIn is definitely easiest and best place to find me. So I always welcome notes, feedback, invites, like suggestions, all of that stuff. I welcome it. I am not always as responsive. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I just get hit up with so much spam on LinkedIn too. And so like, I'm not always as responsive or on top of it as I would like to be, but ultimately I do go through everything and, and I catch up on that stuff. And, and that is easily the best place to find me i'm not cool enough for x and whatever else is going on there (laughs) i think i think you would do really really well on x i know peace would agree i think you have some incredible unique thoughts to yourself and your experiences are very unique i think you would stand out on x that's our opinion maybe one day we see the dip the x account if not (laughs) i'll be on the linkedin for sure way too much pressure way too much pressure no it's been such a pleasure to speak to you both peace Chris, like I've really enjoyed this conversation and I've jumped on podcasts before, but they're rarely as much fun. So thank you. Dipti is a flatterer, ladies and gentlemen. You're so kind for those words. We really (laughs) appreciate that. Well, Dipti, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day, Beth. Yes. And to everyone listening to the New Seed Podcast, thank you very much. And until next time.